Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Healthcare Experience Matters. Today, we're joined by Steve Meth. He's the Chief Patient Experience Officer with Johns Hopkins Medicine, and he's going to talk about inclusive leadership. 30 seconds on me. I came out of uh, law school. I clerked for a medical malpractice plaintiff's firm. Quickly recognized that a very high percentage of the calls from patients and often, more often, family members looking to sue a doc, a nurse, a health system were because there was a breakdown of communication, coordination, trust. And uh, I realized, or I, I saw the light, I saw the error in my ways of being uh, an administrative fee um, on that side and recognized I want to do something different and really have been focusing on communication coordination, particularly systems to help improve the reliability of both uh, to reduce harm and uh, and really love this niche of patient experience. I'm the chief patient experience officer uh, for Johns Hopkins uh, Medicine and uh, prior to that have had the same title at a large non, uh, uh, not-for-profit seven hospital system in the Northeast. And before that, a 45 hospital for-profit system based out of Southern California. Uh, I'm, I got asked to basically give a few short thoughts to address three principal questions. Why is inclusive leadership essential? What have I observed amongst the traits of some of the most inclusive leaders I've worked with? And then, you know, finally, what obstacles are you all likely to face in the real world? And how might we address some of those? I'll just start at the interviewing phase, and then we'll jump into why is inclusive leadership so essential. I think it's just really critical to be yourself uh, in an interview, uh, last three roles, I've gotten comfortable enough in, you know, interview one or interview two, just to start talking about, uh, my husband, it's my eight year wedding anniversary or, or was, uh, this week and just, you know, let it drop in conversation. I'd rather folks know. And if they have any issues to bring it forward, to know that you're going to be welcome in the right place. Um, on the flip side of that, I would just say, as managers, requesting diverse candidate pools are really, really important. And nine times out of 10, I fail in, in, in getting the request that I seek. And I will often have to go to your own network. And sometimes I'll see managers just hesitant, you know, to reach out on LinkedIn to go to their own folks and try to get a diverse candidate pool. But I would say really don't, don't hesitate for a second there. And then as you're designing job descriptions, this is, this is again, terribly tactical. Take a look at those educational requirements. Oftentimes those are a barrier to getting great folks with different diverse and, and really valuable lived experiences on your team or in your system. Um, all right, so let's talk about why, why inclusive leadership is so essential for me. Uh, I, I, on my team, first of all, issue spotting, you know, for folks that if we're designing a program or we're, we're looking to build up a team, I think it's, it's just so important for folks to say, Hey, student debt may be an issue for, um, you know, for folks that are looking to go into this career or to jump into this role on the flip side of that, you know, the opposite 
potential candidates could be worried about financial security around retirement, right? So just getting as simple as um, age diversity onto the team to make uh, you as leaders aware of issues you may not be thinking of are really critical. Even like uh, on a very practical level for our patients, if they're having to choose between uh, you know, food or medicine, uh, you know, rent or electricity, the, these, these in, impossible decisions, oftentimes those that we serve are forced to make, it, it really helps, um, I think, guide the process to have folks that have lived in those shoes. I just faced, um, you know, and I'm, I'm navigating a really interesting uh, a question around criminal background investigations and universal drug screens, and uh, particularly for volunteers and particularly for patient family advisory councils. And, you know, you're balancing sometimes uh, an important layer of safety for patients, family members, often the most vulnerable members of our society that we take care of within our walls and, and once they transition to home. And, um, you know, the potential perception that we don't trust members of the community that we serve. Why might we be doing criminal background investigations or why might we be doing universal drug screens? And so these are just, I think, really important questions to have, uh, you know, diverse and inclusive leadership team to help tackle and to weigh and to balance the pros and cons. Um, and there's ways to, you know, to, to land and to find compromise uh, and, and listen to those diverse views. So here's a, a situation I've been in and folks I know are on the phone have been in. Um, sometimes on the executive leadership team, you are the only, you're the only, or I, I've been the only LGBTQ uh, executive reporting to the CEO. It's really uncomfortable when something happens in the LGBTQ community or Latinx or Asian and the CEO looks to you. <laughs> but, you know, maybe some of us have been in that. It doesn't matter your reporting structure, but it can be terribly not just uncomfortable. I would say it could be terribly narrow to be the only, you know, you may not have the expertise. You have one perspective and, you know, as incidents keep popping up or a solution is sought, it could be draining really to be the only and pretty hard to disagree with. So those are just a you know, couple, couple lived experiences I think are important. Two more items to tack on to that. Uh, we've heard a lot about mentorship. And I would just say that while formal programs are fantastic and if you have the capacity to create a formal mentorship program at your institution, um, go ahead and do it. I would just say that some of the best mentorships I've uh, received or participated in have been entirely informal. So in the absence of structure, or if you don't have the capacity, so many of us on the call wear uh, six or seven hats, uh, I, I would say don't shy away from the informal mentorship opportunities. Two things that uh, may or may not be within your capacity, but I think are critically important to all leaders are to take a look at your patient family advisory council compositions. Do they actually reflect the communities that your health system, your hospital serves? Mine haven't. They just haven't. 
and being honest and data-driven about it through voluntary uh, self-disclosure surveys and then creating a pathway to improve that. That's what we can do and what we can control. And also for folks that may have patient experience oversight or roles, it's a very powerful position that I think we have and a responsibility to create patient family advisory council affinity groups to give voice and counsel throughout the system. No one else is going to do this. HR may lead employee resource groups. You may want to jump in or start an employee resource group, participate or lead. But if you're a patient experience leader, I would say don't miss the opportunity to support the growth of a PFAC affinity group or to like critically examine an online um, digital advisor group to really seek more than just the 10 folks who have the time to show up from six to seven on the first Tuesday of the month. So, you know, as, as times change, don't be afraid to seek a partner in finding and creating some, um, some virtual advisors or virtual advisor programs. Okay. So a couple just lived observations from some of the most inclusive leaders that I've worked with. They're really invested in co-creation rather than validation. Uh, we've heard so many talking about the importance uh, really of, well, let me just say the framework first. I think it's really important just to create the infrastructure where there's smoke detectors and regular life safety checks to prevent the fires. And to me, that's, you know, employee resource groups, that's patient family advisor groups, rather than trying to extinguish a fire, a lot less costly, a lot less um, morally damaging, I think, to the, to, the, to the body of the organization. And I would say, you know, the most inclusive leaders I've worked with, they care a lot less about that alphabet soup following um, our names. They just don't care about the pedigrees or the education or the certification. Uh, you know, some of the most successful leaders I see, they just value and they seek that lived grit, uh, that determination. Folks that have overcome adversity and, you know, folks that particularly vocalize their leadership gaps that are can be honest and vulnerable. I heard that as a theme from earlier today. And, um, you know, very tactically, I've had to embed these three questions into my work style and to make sure that I am demonstrating appreciative inquiry. If I'm coming in to understand a program around 48-hour post-discharge phone calls to patients, which I think is overwhelmingly valued valuable to catch near misses, to make sure patients are transitioning home well, the questions that arise are overwhelming. Um, here's the three questions I'm asking for any program. What's working well around identifying safety needs and then preventing their reoccurrence in this 48-hour post-discharge phone call? And what do you think makes it work so well? And then what do you think we could do more of to take it to the next level? And um, the most inclusive leaders I've seen, they ask more questions. They speak less and they're conscientious to speak last. 
One more just tidbit there is um, a preference or a practice to utilize less passive education, less emails, less posters, less handouts, and have more face-to-face dialogue and discussion. Okay, last question to tackle, then we'll open it up for dialogue. What are some of the obstacles you all might encounter? Uh, I'll just share a couple that I have encountered. And I might say my guiding principle around this is just no presumptions, no assumptions, and let data motivate the change. I just mentioned um, an example in these 48-hour post-discharge calls. This is a a project I had the opportunity to work with Katie on, a fantastic project. And, you know, in the first year alone, we caught something like 5,200 patients that were struggling that, you know, either couldn't pick up their med didn't start taking it, couldn't make their follow-up appointment, had a question about their discharge instructions. And we were able to intercept what would have likely been uh, a readmission for so many of those. And we saw the HCAPS scores just improved so dramatically without adding staff or FTs to the the balance sheet. But, you know, what, what really motivated change is we started looking at uh, by demographics. Well, our Spanish-speaking patients, in a manner that was statistically significant, struggled more around making their follow-up appointments with their primary care docs. Well, if we know it, if we look for it, we could address it. We could highlight our Spanish-speaking docs, and we could bridge that gap. So I think you know we're, when you use that appreciative inquiry, when you keep moving it forward, what's working well. Um, you know, what makes it work well, specifically, what do you think we could do more of it? um, It's just really powerful. And then we could focus the organization's priorities around uh, the Spanish speaking patients that were suffering the most. We were catching them, which is great. But, um, you know, how do we make sure that, uh, you know, the next patient doesn't have that same, same issue. And I would just say here, here's a, here's a politically uncomfortable one. I would say even and especially when the data exposes vulnerabilities, we have an obligation as leaders to do so. Ask, demand, find out, look at the percentage of frontline employees that are promoted to supervisor, supervisor to manager, manager to director by race, ethnicity, by age. It's worth taking a look at, even if and especially with it highlights disparities. How else are we going to improve them? I've heard, and you may have heard, you know, Steve, I don't want to ask that question. Don't embed it on a survey. Don't ask a question because, you know, let's let's just say if we ask about bedside shift report, something benign like that, at the end as a custom question attached to an HCAP survey, you know, what if that patient didn't receive that intervention? Is it going to drag down the entire, you know, score? Their perception is, you know, I was, I was ripped off. I didn't get this XYZ intervention. Um, So don't ask it, remove it. You know, we're getting negative data quarter over quarter, pull it from the survey. Uh, I I would just say uh, to the extent possible, grab another resource to make sure um, that that doesn't happen in your organization or, you use data to motivate, to course correct. 
just one cool final example, two, two final examples, and I'll, I'll take some questions here. I would love some questions. Very recent one highlighting that across a multitude of locations for patients that are 80 years or older, we're seeing statistically significant lower HCAP scores. This is not uncommon across the nation, frailty, um, you know, and, and patients' well-being and scores for older patients tend to rise, but at 80, they tend to decline because their needs become so great. Typical patient experience interventions may not address those alone, uh, but relative to the rest of the nation, we're not doing as well. And I think it's really important to highlight that and to rally, rally the organization around those deficiencies, but data aren't always so clear. So another example we just identified were, um, were just variants. So patients that identify as black or African-American female age 40 to 50 to 64 um, had the most diverse responses, meaning we had a larger spectrum of both promoters, passive respondents and detractors. And so even if it doesn't, you know, fire or trigger a warning to say scores are better, scores that worse, just looking at um, some of the variants could be an indicator to say, we may have variation or inconsistencies in how we care for uh, and, and likely do black or African-American females age 50 to 64. So I would just say, you know, as, as a core tenant there, no presumptions, no assumptions, let the data motivate the change. We may not always know how to solution or to fix it, but this is a really important first step is to at least scan, continue to scan, find those opportunities, bring in the right folks um, to help tackle them together. Thank you, Steve. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Healthcare Experience Matters. Healthcare Experience Matters is brought to you by the Healthcare Experience Foundation. To learn more, please visit healthcareexperience.org. That's healthcareexperience.org.